Luke chapter 2. We'll read verses 8 through 12. Our study will focus on verse 11. But Jesus has been born, laid in the manger, because there's no room for them in the end. And then in Luke 2, verse 8, we read, And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Well, last week we examined how the angel's news would bring comfort and joy to the shepherds in verse 10 that nothing need dismay them moving forward, no matter how awful everything around them might get, because God was going to deal with the biggest fear they could ever face, the gap between Him and them. Now, we talked about that, that idea of these four things that the angel did. Fear not, behold, pay attention, I've got good news for you, and it's for everybody. But the angel didn't explain yet how that gap would be bridged. How would God deal with that gap? What is the reason for this great joy and comfort that the shepherds need to spread it to all the people? Well, verse 11 gives us the answer. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Two descriptions, a Savior, and then secondly, which is Christ the Lord. First off, this idea that the Savior has been born. While the shepherds weren't present for the birth, they did get to see the Savior in a manger. But I think sometimes when we think about that, we get this idea that things just kind of continued that way for the rest of the shepherds' lives. That's not true, though. It's not like they became Jesus' posse from that point on. It's not like wherever the baby went, there were a bunch of shepherds following him around. And I promise you, (laughs) there was no Uncle Isaac, the shepherd from Bethlehem, who showed up to check on Jesus every year. How's he doing? How's the kingdom planning going? And... Contrary to popular belief, baby Jesus did not glow when they arrived. There was nothing unique about the situation other than the angel's confirmed word. That's it, to prove Jesus' identity. It's not like they were looking around going, which one is it? And they looked at the manger and there's... Aside from the fact that a child was in a feeding trough, beside that oddity... All they had was the fact that there was a child there, just like the angel said. And so even if we didn't see the angel or the angels who showed up later on, we have God's confirmed word just as much as the shepherds did. I've often heard it said, well, if the gospel's true, if Jesus is who he says he is, if the Bible's true, why doesn't God just appear and and tell me? Why must I believe in something I cannot see, touch, or hear? Well, The very nature of the question, it serves as kind of its default basis that God has been silent, that there is nothing to see, hear, or touch. But God is not silent. There is something to see, to touch, and to hear. God gave us a collection of books, a large collection of books, that chart His promise of a Savior from Genesis to Malachi, and then He gave us the testimony of those who were eyewitnesses of that Savior from Matthew to Revelation. I think sometimes we can over-fantasize what it was like for the shepherds. 
Let me ask you a question. Maybe I'm the only one who's this way, maybe not you, but I know for me, God has done things that are just God things in my life. Like there are things you just thought was like, wow, that's the Lord. Like God did a miracle. It came through in a way that it just had to be the Lord. However, when I come to my next time when I need a miracle, it's easy to rationalize how what happened previously wasn't a miracle and it was just coincidence. It's very easy when you're in a new trial and a new struggle to, the enemy kind of says, oh, would you really think that was God? I mean, like anybody could have just, that could have just happened to anybody or it could have happened that way by coincidence. Maybe somebody told them what you needed or, or maybe that someone just showed up with food on that day because they had seen something that you were looking skinny, Will, you know, whatever. <laughs> Not usually a problem these days. There are all sorts of rationale that we can have in our mind to, for it not to be enough. I, I can imagine the shepherds 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, maybe looking at each other going, maybe it was just like a, maybe it was like a, I don't know, maybe we had too much to drink that night. <laughs> maybe we just didn't get enough sleep. It's a very human thing to leave a miraculous event and the more you get separated from it to forget how miraculous it was. The shepherds did not get repeat visits from angels. It's not like every Christmas, December 25th, or whenever it happened, probably not the 25th, but whenever it happened, it's not like angels showed up and like, hey boys, remember, go give them the good news. They went right back to regular nights of work. And so what they had, all they had really was the message that God sent. And that's the same thing you and I have. And if we read those messages from the Bible, the messages from the Lord, we know that God predicted the exact time and place that the birth of Christ would occur. And so I guess maybe I would say, rather than ask why God doesn't appear to you and prove it to you, I should rather ask you, what more must God do? Like, what else does God have to do? Why would you believe if you saw God and He told you the same things He's already told the entire world in His Word? Why would that make it a difference? You know, it's interesting. Jesus taught that a miracle wouldn't change my mind if I refused to believe God's Word. There's this interesting story that Jesus tells. Most people call it a parable. I don't think it was, but I'm not going to wrestle you over it if you do. But in Luke 16, He tells this story about two men, a rich man unnamed, and then a beggar named Lazarus. And it mentions that they both die. And the rich man, being a wicked man, found himself in Hades, in a place of torment. And Lazarus, being a righteous man, found himself in a place called paradise, Abraham's bosom. And Abraham was there, and there was a huge chasm between these two spots, and people couldn't cross between them. And when that dawned on the rich man, that this is where he was going to be and that people he loved would probably join him there if they didn't repent. He said to Abraham in Luke 16, 27, then he said, I pray you therefore, Father, Abraham, that you would send him to my father's house, Lazarus. Send Lazarus to my family's house. For I have five brothers that he, Lazarus, may testify to them lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, interesting response, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he, the rich man, said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, if Lazarus came back from the dead, they would repent. And Abraham said unto him, 
If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. That's crazy, but it's true. Here's my guess. If old beggar Lazarus showed up at the rich boy's house, I thought you died. Yeah, God sent me back to warn you about what's coming. Your brother asked me to warn you, so you repent. They'd probably just kick him to the curb again. And the reason I can say that is because Jesus rose from the dead and he's still getting kicked to the curb. Only a handful of those shepherds saw the angel, God's glory, and heard this specific message. You and I are no different than 99.9999999% of the people in the world who must make a decision, not based on what we see, but based on what God has revealed in His Word. And so in the end, the shepherds had to believe the content of the message, just like you and me, just like we do. Is this child the Savior, or is He not? Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the Savior? Well, rulers back then, they often took the title of Savior. At least four Egyptian rulers prior to the Roman Empire took the title Soter. They'd have their name and then Soter next to it. And Soter is Greek for Savior. Later on, when the Roman Empire came around, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Nero, Titus, Vespasian, Trajan, and Hadrian, all were Roman emperors who took some form of the title Savior of the world. So this is not a new title per se, but certainly as emperors would be announced as the Savior of the world, we should ask the question, well, does it mean the same exact thing as it did for these governing officials? Well, we have to look to the Scriptures again. The Bible tells us that an angel explained to Joseph, Jesus's not biological father, but father on earth, explained to him what the title of Savior meant for his boy. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, we see this message from the angel. Now, Joseph, when Mary started to show she was pregnant, he, being a righteous man, didn't want to make a public example of her and decided to divorce her quietly. That was what he had planned to do. Back then, when you were engaged, you needed to, to get a divorce. It started before you got married. That's how serious the commitment was of engagement in Jewish culture. But as he's going to bed at night, verse 20 tells us, but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. So here we have Joseph doing what you and I do a lot. I know last night I had things on my mind. I got to make sure I get this done, this done, this done. And Joseph is thinking to himself, all right, so this is how I'll break it to Mary. This is how I'll candle it, make sure no one, it's not a big public spectacle. I don't want anyone to think she's done anything wrong. I'll just do this quietly. He's going through in his mind how he's going to handle this, probably gut-wrenching and emotional as he's figuring out this, can't sleep, and then finally falls to sleep. And an angel pops into his dream and says to him, Joseph, thou son of David. I love, he reminds Joseph who he is. You might just be the town fixer guy in Nazareth, but you're a descendant of kings. You should not be surprised by this. Fear not to take unto you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. In our English language or our Latin-based language, Jewish would be Yehoshua or Yeshua or Joshua, which all of them mean the Lord is salvation. 
And why will you call him the Lord of salvation? For he shall save his people from their sins. That's what the title of Savior meant for Jesus. John the Baptist confirmed that meaning at Jesus' baptism when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. The sin of the world. Savior, the word means one who rescues. The birth of this child is directly tied to a rescue. God became a man to take my place on a cross, to bear all the wrath that I deserve for my sin so that I can be rescued from eternal separation from God. I never have to experience what the rich man did. And the whole reason this is good news for the shepherd and for all the people is because it's what God's going to do. The angel's message is good news because the source of joy isn't me or my efforts to bridge the gap. The only rescue from the gap that exists between us and God is Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, I know that's offensive to some. I know it upsets some. That's exclusive. You're telling me that people who don't believe in Jesus aren't going to heaven? Yes, it's exactly what Jesus said. I didn't make that up. Jesus said that. But that's good news. That's not bad news. You know what would have been bad news? If the angel showed up and he said, all right, here's the deal. I've got great news for you. Wonderful. What is it? Here's the great news. If you do this, 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 and this, these four things, without fail, you get to go to heaven. That would have been horrific news because I would have looked at the angel and said, I'm horrible at those four things. If God just gave me one thing to do, I'd find a way to mess it up. I know that because he gave Adam and Eve just one thing to do. Stay away from the tree. Don't eat it. And of all the blessings that God gave to them, people, why did God put the tree in the garden? That's how much God loves us. He only put one tree, one temptation, one. And he didn't put a temptation there. It was the enemy that used it as a temptation. He put one option for us to choose to not love him. One option. People got lots of reasons not to love me. But God gave them one option. This is the way you can choose to rebel. This is the way you can choose to not want me. So if God even just gave me one thing to get right, I'd mess that up. The Bible tells us we'd all mess it up. So the angel's message is wonderful because the source of joy isn't me. It's not my efforts to bridge the gap between me and God. The wonderful news is that it's someone outside of me who loves me and will give his life for me. God in flesh, a little baby in a manger who by his life and death would rescue us all. That was the message that the angels were charged with sharing to all the people. This is the message that's meant to bring us, from them to us, great joy. And this is the message that we are charged with sharing to all the people if we've experienced that great joy. Now, the New Testament calls Jesus a Savior over 20 times. But this title, that Jesus is a Savior, it's not limited to rescuing us from our sins. Sometimes when it's used in the New Testament, it refers to something else. In Philippians 3, verse 20, it's a, a perfect example of this usage. It says, for our conversation is in heaven. In other words, our, we're living for heaven, guys. We're not living for here. We're living for heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How similar that is to the angel's message. The angel says, here's the good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. 
And then Paul later on, he says, listen, we're not living for earth. We're living for heaven. And we're looking to heaven from whence we look for the Savior, Christ Jesus, the Lord. We are looking forward to another future rescue, the time when Jesus comes to rule and righteousness on the earth, which is why the angel clarifies a second reason this news brings such great joy, because this Savior is also Christ the Lord. Now, this title, this title of Christ the Lord is an exalted title. The word Christ, it means the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, Throughout the Old Testament, God anointed many people. There were, in that sense, many anointed ones. But God had promised the nation of Israel a specific anointed one who would be the ruler of the world forever. We read about that in our scripture reading in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, it's the verses 1 through 10, they're bookended by two references to this offspring of David. In verse 1 of chapter 11 of Isaiah, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch that shall grow out of his roots. And then in verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, and to it shall the Gentiles, that's most of us here qualify for that, to it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. We've got these bookended statements in here in this prophecy of this king who is coming to reign. This king who, it says, will not do like we do. We judge by our eye or we judge by our thoughts, but he will judge after righteousness. He will judge the wicked. And the Bible says the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like water covers the sea. So much so that the very animals will not be issues anymore. My bird, I was praying this morning, and I was just thinking about, like, oh, here he goes with his bird again. <laughs> it's not my bird, clearly not, because he bites me. It doesn't bite his true owner. But like, I was praying this morning, I was thinking, Lord, I don't want to be like the bird. I don't want to be nipping at you when you're trying to work in my life. You know, like, I have all good thoughts towards this bird. Like, I just want, I want to just, you know, I want to pet him, pluck his feathers, you know, talk to him, whatever. He just wants to eat me. They will come a day and every bird will love me. <laughs> but the point is, like, animals get frightened. They don't understand. They, they act that way. There'll be a day when everything will be restored to the way it was back in the garden. That's not just anybody. That's not just some guy who's going to show up and the next 10 years will be nice. This is the, the one who will rule the world forever. He is Christ the Lord. That phrase means the one who's in command, the ruler, the one who owns all. Now, that title was also used by Roman emperors. They claimed to be Lord as well, Kurios. And it was more than just a title that described their absolute rule. It wasn't just some title that they would come out, here's the Lord, Caesar, whatever, blah, 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 Savior of the world. The phrase described their unique status among humanity. You see, Roman emperors were considered gods in the flesh. That upon their coronation, a god spirit called a genus rested upon them, making them divine. And so when someone was proclaiming that Caesar is Lord, it was a statement of divinity. It wasn't just saying, yep, you're the boss and I do what you say. No, it was saying, I believe that this genus spirit has rested upon you and you're more than man now. You're to be worshiped. That's why in the New Testament when it says no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God, 
Because in that day, when you would be brought before the Roman tribunal or the priesthood, and you would be required to recite the phrase, Caesar is Lord, and then offer a pinch of incense upon the altar to this genus, it would be a statue usually of a head of a Roman emperor, and you'd offer the incense, you would say, Caesar is Lord. So for a Christian, they would not be able to say Caesar is Lord because they would say, I'm a good citizen and and I will definitely obey the laws of the land, but Jesus only is Lord. Caesar is not a God and I will not worship him. I worship Jesus alone. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, no man says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. Now, we live in a different culture today. There is no Caesar yet. He's telling us to say he's Lord. But that's not saying that just anybody who says, well, Jesus is Lord is saying so by the Spirit of God. Back then, it might cost you your life. And so only someone who Jesus was their Lord would do that back then. Well, no mere man can rule forever, no matter how good of an emperor or king or president they might be. But this child that the angel announces was no mere man nor was he a man in whom some God spirit would rest at some point in his life. He was God the Son from all eternity given to humanity in the form of a man. And that Savior brought a promised kingdom. While the angel told Joseph that Jesus would be a Savior, Gabriel, the angel told Mary that Jesus would be the promised ruler. If we go back to Luke chapter 1, just one chapter away from our text this morning, In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, Gabriel tells Mary this. Luke 1, verse 31. And behold, you, Mary, shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, just like Isaiah 11 prophesied. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's what the angel told Mary. And the Bible had predicted that the ruler whose origin was from eternity would enter our world from Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, O thou Bethlehem of Ephratah. I messed with my kids. We were doing the Advent calendar and going through the Christmas story. Each day they pull out a verse and we read part of the Christmas story. And as I was going through that with, oh, they were reading it, I said, well, which Bethlehem was it? And they all kind of looked at me. There were two Bethlehems in Israel back then. And Micah 5, 2 is making it clear it's the Bethlehem in Judah. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from eternity." Very clear that God would become a man, be born in Bethlehem. Now, this promise of the Messiah, the Lord being born in Bethlehem, was not a secret to Israelis. They knew. And so, can you understand now why the shepherds were so excited when they saw Jesus that it says after they saw him in Luke 2.20, they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them? Because in their mind, everything they had hoped for was going to happen. Everything we've been waiting for for centuries. Isaiah spoke 700 years before the birth of Christ. Everything we've been waiting for for centuries is finally going to happen. It's going to happen in our day. And yet, it did not happen like they thought it would, did it? Which brings us to the point of the announcement. I am sure the shepherds left that stable, imagining a day when 
No Roman soldiers intimidated them or extorted them when even their own people didn't look down on them because a shepherd was not a respectable profession back then. It was considered a low profession. I'm sure that they were imagining a day when righteousness would cover the earth like water covers the seas, when all would be right with not just their world, but the whole world. I imagine those thoughts brought them great joy for weeks as they anticipated how wonderful the near future would be. But Jesus' kingdom didn't turn out to be like Greece or Rome or even David's kingdom. Even Jesus explained that his kingdom wouldn't operate like that right now. Before his trial with Pilate, or on his trial before Pilate, Jesus, in John 18, 36, he said something very interesting. In John 18, 35, Pilate said, I know why you're here. You've got problems with the religious leaders. What have you done? Just tell me what's going on. Tell me what the real deal is here. You almost get the impression that Pilate likes Jesus a little bit. Like he doesn't want to do this. Tell me what's going on. I'll find some way to get you out of this. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, he didn't say forever, but now is my kingdom not from hence. My kingdom is not going to be seen here right now. Hebrews tells us we do not see all things under his feet yet. It's fascinating to me. God gets none of the credit for all the good things that happen in our world, gets all the blame for the catastrophes that happen. The Bible tells us we don't see all things under his feet. This world's broken. It's under the prince of the power of the air. That leaves the shepherds with a very different future than the one they imagined this night had brought them, doesn't it? So how would they remain in a place of deep-seated gladness despite the fact that decades later, things turned out very different than they'd hoped? It all goes back to the angel's message. The angel left them, in verse 11, with three important concepts that bring great joy. And embracing those same three concepts is the only way we too can have lasting joy in a world that is not under Christ's rule yet. First off, they announce He is a Savior. You and I need to embrace the concept of Jesus as a Savior. The shepherds hoped for a Savior from Rome, but here's the truth. If Jesus came that way, Rome, Israel, the shepherds, and the entire world would not have been rescued. They would have been judged. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because everyone in the world has sinned. There's not a single one who has not. Every human being to exist has fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us. If you're here today, you've fallen short of God's glory. And the gap is gargantuan. It's not like, well, I'll do a few things to make up the gap. I'll make it up to God. I'll give to Toys for Tots for Christmas. That's not going to be enough. The gap is gargantuan. The only hope of a rescue is rescue from someone who doesn't have a gap with God. Someone to stand in the gap for us. And that's what it means that Jesus was a savior. Jesus was born as a child in a manger to live a perfect life, one I could never live, to make up that gap, and then, despite his perfect life, to die a criminal's death. In other words, the death I deserve because I could never make up that gap. This is the first basis for a gladness that never fades, being rescued from sin. 
being made right with God. I can wake up every single day, it doesn't matter how bad yesterday was, and I can know I've been rescued from my sin, that I'm right with the Lord. That all I need to do is confess my, we learn it in 1 John, confess my sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and start doing surgery to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Every day, I can know that I am my beloved's and he is mine. Now, if you have never repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior, then there can be no lasting gladness. Because even if everything goes your way in this life, you will spend an eternity in judgment. And God does not want that. That was the whole point of last week's message. He says, don't be afraid. Behold, I've got good news for you. It's good news for a lasting joy, a lasting gladness, and it's for everyone, every single person. None of you are exempt from that today. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, how much you've rebelled against God, how much even you've hated God. For God so loved you, the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever, including you, believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. God wants to bring you close. He wants to bridge that gap, and Jesus came to do that. And if you will repent of your sins, the word repent, it means to change your mind. It means to think differently about your sin. Right now, you make excuses for it, or you think it's not that bad, or it's okay, or you'll make up for it somehow. And to repent of your sins is, Lord, none of that's true. I change my mind how I think about my sin. My sin isn't okay, and there's only one solution for it. It's the cross. And I'm putting all my faith in Christ. I want to follow you. The Bible says when you do that, he'll forgive you of all your sins and make you his child. If you've already done that, if you're already right with God today, then part of having this lasting joy is we need to learn to rest in that. Rest in the fact that our sins are forgiven, that we're right with God. And Christmas is a wonderful time, a great time to refocus on that. Secondly, you and I need to embrace the concept not just of Jesus as Savior, but Jesus as Christ the Lord. When Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world, not right now, Pilate goes, oh, so you are a king then. Now he's like, okay, maybe there is an issue here. I like you, Jesus, but if you're claiming to be a king, we got a problem. And Jesus answers in John 18, 37, he says, you say correctly that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth, and everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. I don't have to tell you that there are, are many voices screaming at us. You just got to turn on your phone. All you got to do is turn on your television or your computer monitor or the radio. There are tons of voices that are screaming at us. But the only voice that brings lasting gladness is Jesus's voice. It's the only one. And if you have heard his voice, you understand that. You know that, and I'm not talking about an audible sound. I'm not saying God can't do that or maybe God hasn't done that in your life. He's not done that in my life but I'm talking about how he speaks to our hearts and our minds. You know the comfort that Jesus' voice brings you, even when his voice is bringing conviction, because it's his voice that brings peace and hope in the midst of that conviction. These shepherds, they were going to face the same trials they'd been facing before Jesus was born, and they were going to face them to the day they died. At some point, they had to make a choice. Do I keep believing the angel's message, or do I reject the angel's message? Is it worth it to follow Jesus and do things his way, or should I just go do things my way? Jesus told Pilate that everyone that is of the truth hears his voice. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, thy word is truth. 
Everyone that hears your word, God, (laughs) they're listening to me. The message is the truth. And if you and I want to experience the comfort and joy that the angel promised, we need to embrace the angel's tidings, that the rule of the world has come and my whole life belongs to him. There is no comfort and joy in selfishness. There is no comfort and joy in disobedience or rebellion against the king of kings. But there is great comfort in surrender to him. Christmas is a great time to refocus on my need to submit to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Just say, Lord, I'm yours. We say, I adore you. There's love involved in that, but there's also submission. You're the king. Like You're way up here. I'm reading in Job right now in my devotion time, and I'm at the part where God shows up at the end, and God is asking Job all these questions. Were you there when the angels were taught to sing? Were you there when birds learned to do this? Were you there when animals learned this? And I'm reading through this. I'm, man, I'm reading. I'm sure Job felt really small, but as I'm reading through it, I'm just feeling smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I started thinking to myself, I said, what do I actually know? And it's not a whole lot. The person I know the most, I'm still trying to figure her out. I'll let you guess who that might be. And no, my bird's not a woman. There's so much I didn't have a say in about how this universe works. So little I fully understand. Christmas is a great time to focus on our need to submit to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to pledge our life to him and to his ways, and then to find rest in his leadership of our lives. And then thirdly, not only do we need to embrace the concept that Jesus is a savior, that Jesus is the Christ of the Lord, but thirdly, we need to embrace the concept that Jesus being a savior and Lord, it has a future component to it. No, those shepherds would never see Rome overthrown in their lifetime. Some of them might have even been alive when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and exiled the Israeli people from the promised land. But they could find lasting joy in the promise that the one who would one day set all things aright had already been born. Listen, the clock, the God clock, you know, like God's time clock, made very, one very important tick in that direction on this day, 2,000 years ago. And we are now 2,000 years removed from that very important tick on God's time clock. If they had reason back then to be filled with joy and comfort at what they were looking forward to, guys, we are that much closer to it. We are that much closer to it. You may be battling sickness or financial trials or loneliness or relationship difficulties now, but there is coming a day that is way closer than it was before that first Christmas where all those troubles will come to an end. I want to read to you, this will be the last scripture I share with you, or section of scripture, is Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 2 through 7, uses such similar language that John uses in his gospel when he talks about Christ's birth. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase, dwelt among us, means he tabernacled among us. He built his tent right among us. Well, Revelation 21, 2 says similar words, but with a different tone. 
In Revelation 21.2, John says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. It's going to happen, John. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Guys, that is a reason to be comforted and joy-filled no matter what you're going through right now. Because we are not waiting for our Savior, this Messiah ruler, to be born. He's long been born, and he is coming back soon. If I look around me hard enough or long enough, I will find very few tidings of comfort and joy. But those are not to be the source of my comfort and joy, even if those things get better. The source of my comfort and joy is the fact that all will be more than just fine in the end. All will be perfect. And if that isn't enough to give you joy this Christmas, then you need a redirection in your heart and mind. A redirection. You need to embrace the tidings that the angel brought because otherwise Christmas will pass and you will miss the point. Now, one final warning. When Jesus returns, it mentions one other thought here. In verse 8 of Revelation 21, it says, but in contrast to the blessing, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If you are not right with God this morning, do not put it off because that is what awaits you. No pursuit of joy or comfort in this life is worth that. None. And so, with both those thoughts in mind, I leave you with the first stanza of God rest ye merry, gentlemen. God rest ye merry, ladies and gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember. Take time to remember this Christmas. Remember that Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us, to rescue us, all of us, from Satan's power when we, all of us, had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Amen? Lord, we love you. We are so grateful for the incarnation. We're so grateful, Lord, that you stepped out of heaven and came to earth to pay the price for our sins to live a life that we could never live, that we might have your life attributed to us and, Lord, our sin attributed to you, expunged by your sacrifice. Thank you so much, Lord, that we stand clean before you. I pray for my dear brothers and sisters this morning and for myself, Lord, that you'd help us to remember the important part of that lyric, remember. Lord, to remember what it means that you're born this day. Remember the angel's announcement that we have tidings of comfort and joy, that if we'll look to you as a Savior, Lord, we can have joy no matter what. If we, can, if we look to you as our Lord, we can be comforted no matter what. And if we look to your soon return, 
then it doesn't matter what this world throws at us because we know in the end we win. So Lord, turn our hearts there. Help us, remind us, we pray, so that we don't miss you this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.